You're listening to an Ancient Futures podcast produced by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. On November 29th, 2021, we held a book celebration at the church because I had discovered that a number of people had been busily writing away over the course of the pandemic times. Well, actually two of them had published right as the pandemic was about to begin. John Bodicher writing his book on the Ten Commandments, Angeline Schellenberg writing and publishing Fields of Light and Stone, a collection of poetry. To this was added my own book, A Kind of Solitude, Adeline Berg's book, The Orange Couch on Wheels, Jan Woltman's book, A Brain Tumor Changes Everything, and Samantha Clausen's comic book, sponsored by St. Benedict's Table and the Collegeville Institute. It's a review of the weaving project that we did together as a community that Samantha did the lion's share of work on as the pandemic set in. All to say, none of these authors really had an opportunity to share publicly the work they'd done. And so, as the regulations have changed and we're allowed to have gatherings in the church, limited size and with masks on, of course, it still seemed the time was right to celebrate these works. In this podcast, you'll be hearing two of those six authors, and then over the coming weeks, we'll produce more podcasts and you can listen in to what others in that group have been writing. Today we begin with Angeline Schellenberg, poems from her collection, Fields of Light and Stone. Now, Angeline is the newest of the writing members in this little circle. She actually connected to St. Ben's after the pandemic had started, virtually and through a book group, a virtual book group. She is a poet Her previous volume was Tell Them It Was Mozart, and now Fields of Light and Stone, which was released in March 2020, right as things began to close down. So, we're delighted to be able to share Angeline reading some of the poems from Fields of Light and Stone, and we're quite delighted that she was part of our circle that night. This is Angeline Schellenberg. Generations, 1586, as far back as the Mennonite database can take me. All I find, the surname Vogt, a town called Kohn. My great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had a daughter who had a baby. And on it goes. What chases us down a family tree? A high forehead? A voice? A fear? What drives me to scratch the earth for these four-letter kernels? Vogt's daughter named her son Hans. God is gracious. A promise I can translate. But I cannot hear the plea it answered. 
I started writing Fields of Light and Stone in 2011. The last of my four beloved Mennonite grandparents had passed away two years earlier, and I wanted to process my spiritual inheritance and my grief. Um, my maternal grandma and grandpa were um, seed farmers and pastors in the MB Church in Boisevain, and my paternal oma and opa were chicken and grain farmers living on the same yard with me near Niverville. So I looked into their ancestry, their courtship, their faith, my childhood memories, and their stories of their last days with dementia, cancer, or heart disease. This is his body. Grandpa can't remember my name. Someone says, that's not him. It's just a body. Yes, my flesh and blood embodiment of Christmas hymns and God. Grandpa can't remember God anymore. His blood a hymn, a firmament circling. Grandpa can't remember the days we sat side by side on the combine. Our lungs still sparkling with chaff. This poem has an epigraph from Matthew 10. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Gardening advice from the wife of a pious pastor. At her funeral, I dreamed a black and white door flying wide, a pastor's wife bursting into canola, heavy arms starched by potatoes, dragging pressed sheets. She falls to her knees in the dirt, spilling words she could not say to husband, church, six more itinerant missionaries in upturned hats. When I was a girl, she sat on the edge of my bed to braid my hair and whispered, it's okay to disagree cross the ocean, feel warm next to boys, keep a secret, dance inside. We don't talk about love much, but your grandpa and I enjoy slipping off our covers. When she lay dying, awash in morphine, she pointed one crooked finger to heaven and with a blissful smile yelled, your hat looks silly. I dreamed we were high as kites, our robes flapping. We tasted jello, laughed at death. At her funeral, her neighbor said, Margaret walked me through her flower garden and asked, which color do you see first? White, I answered. Margaret smiled and said, all you need is a little. Moving on to my dad's side of the family. Here's a Christmas one. All is bright. Our hair tinseled by tossed off halos. We breathe silvery air from the manger to Oma's front door. Oma rocks the invisible infant to stille Nacht. Our distortions stare back from cracked baubles. Lemon candy slices speckling each finger. 
Our coats' arms entwine across the sofa. Another year of faults smothered by gravy, the centripetal force of snow. His hands. Across the bed rail, Opa's heavy hand grips mine like a doubt. Here are the bright stumps, my old self, a girl in pigtails, once wept over. When I receive my inheritance, I will open Opa's German Bible, and from it, a Last Supper print will fall, Jesus's palms up, scratched across its back, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. I rub Opa's missing fingers, dead ends. A little girl would know how to kiss them better. Before I read my last poem tonight, I want to thank Jamie and St. Ben so much for welcoming me in um, as a very new uh, part of this congregation. Um, when my book came out in March 2020, I was one of the first uh, book events canceled, and I was heartbroken because my first book launch was one of the happiest um, days of my life, and I felt so supported. Um, so. Thank you. It's so nice to read to people and <laughs> see your faces. The first trees. Aspens are the first trees to recover, to spread after all life has been cut down or burned away. Their shared roots resting below the heat of greed and betrayal. Their sibilant leaves turning gold in unison like the veering of swallows. The weightiest living thing on earth is an aspen stand, 47,000 trunks strong. Tens of thousands of years before flight, it began like all seeds, with an idea, and the soil caught wind of it. Lighter than oak or regret, aspen crates are perfect for carrying the books our ancestors are yet to write. The second book we'd like to highlight in this podcast was written by Jan Waltman, A Brain Tumor Changes Everything. She'll fill in the blanks as to which brain tumor and what it all changed as she introduces and then reads an excerpt from her book. So yeah, it's called The Brain Tumor Changes Everything, Searching for the Shape of Mercy in a Suffering Season. So I've attended St. Benedict's Table for over a decade. My husband Norm and I have experienced healing rhythms here, appreciating the hospitality and gentleness of this worshiping community, and formed by the liturgy that keeps us in the Christian calendar and at the communion table. Almost 10 years ago, our 21-year-old son Nate was diagnosed with cancer in the form of an inoperable brainstem tumor. The tumor was located in the most delicate region of the human body, ground zero, according to our neurosurgeon. Inoperable meant there was no cutting it out, no debulking the thing with a scalpel or a gamma ray. The cancer was lethal, the situation tragic, and hope gone. 
Medical science did everything possible through aggressive radiation and the strongest chemotherapy to delay the tumor's advance, even as we slipped into darker darkness and grief. We did all the things parents do in the wake of heartbreak. We wept, ached, lamented with each breath, pleaded for God's mercy, and planned for the worst loss imaginable. This book chronicles our journey through that very precarious year. And while the compelling medical narrative is the overarching thread, the story weaves in deep and honest reflection and draws wisdom from Christian thinkers such as Martin Laird, Joan Chittister, and Gerald May. So it's written as a braided narrative. There is head and heart, there is science and theology woven together. The reflective threads search for the shape of mercy, its contours large and small during a suffering season. How that tender mercy opened hope-filled space for us and by its holy mystery shaped our sorrow into something beautiful over time. The following is from the prologue. One day we will understand the mercy that shaped our lives, that came to us in the dark night, wrapped around us, steadied our step in the valley of shadow and carried us. Someday we will know the fullness of the mercy that met us in our suffering hour. On that day there will be no degree of separation, only union. Until then, we look for this holy presence that occupies time and space and makes its home in the human heart. We are watchers together for what Joan Chister describes as gifts wrapped in darkness. For mercy in all its misty forms, promise new every morning, saving us again and again. You may come to these pages with curiosity or desperation, skepticism or plain hunger for hope. Whatever it is, may you find something here that feels like firm footing, a place to stand, and may you find in your own story the shape of mercy. Oh, and one more thing. I do hope you are wide-eyed, perhaps astonished even, stretched in your imagination as the narrative unfolds. The section I've chosen to read is from a chapter that is just beyond the halfway point of the book. It's entitled Liminal. This chapter also contains a research segment on young adult cancer in Canada, which is quite eye-opening. I'm dedicating this reading tonight to my 36-year-old niece with cancer, who's in this place of liminality. The quote at the beginning of the chapter is from Margaret Silf. She says, it takes time to get used to this dark, empty, disconnected space. Dark for any lack of waymarks, any maps, any light at the end of the tunnel. Empty of all the meanings that previously guided our life. Empty it feels even of meaning itself. For what meaning can there be in this helpless hanging? This waiting room for something that may not even be real or possible. Disconnected from the links that once held us together, bereft of old relationships, cut off from the old communions and traditions. This is the waiting room, but it feels like a tomb. Thirty rounds of bodily assault in a radiation chamber, 36 doses of maximum strength chemotherapy. Hmm, it won't ruin his ability to think, or I hear our oncologist say. Even now, I pale at the thought. I look at him this morning, still walking and talking as Nate, but he is altered in ways unseen to all but us. Gone is the energy to skate, to walk, to move about, eating takes effort. Uh, his brainstem is full, even after the final treatment, pardon me, the radiation keeps working, accumulating. His brainstem is full of its rays and swollen beyond recognition. And then a new terror takes hold. 
Until now, the goal has been to survive treatment, to mark success in the form of a black X on the calendar at the end of each day, to rip off a countdown sticky on the dining room wall. Until now, the patient is tethered to shape and purpose via his radiation schedule. When the schedule disappears, the patient and his caregivers experience a free fall, a plunge into the void. What does it say, asks Nate, when a letter arrives in the mailbox a few days later? I open it reluctantly, and I feel a familiar gnaw in my gut. February 17, I say. An MRI before four weeks is useless, I hear the oncologist say. Picture would be a blur of indistinguishable tissue. And now, here it is in black and white. Exactly one month to the day until the MRI, and after that, more waiting. Another seven days to finally hear the results from the doctor within the walls of the brain tumor clinic. Almost 40 days of waiting. And for what? At best, the treatments will have paralyzed the growth of the tumor, allowing Nate more time, likely measured in months, maybe a year. At worst, the treatments will have had no impact, and the aggressive tumor will be advancing. I struggle hard to hold this medical opinion alongside the hope of a third way. A miracle. Almost 40 days, the time between the end of treatment and the knowing. A wilderness, a desert, a Lent. A few weeks from now, Christians around the globe will walk out of churches into the night, mortality etched with ash on their foreheads. Ash Wednesday will signal the beginning of the Lent, a 40-day period of fasting reflection before Easter. Our Lenten period began the third week of January as we walked into our night mortality etched with the ash of suffering on our hearts. There is a name for this kind of waiting, a name strange to our ears, a name deep enough to hold questions of life and death, and that name is liminal. The word liminal is from Lehman, Latin for threshold, a place between places, a thin place, where the old no longer fits and the new is not yet perceived or understood. A threshold is not a, simply a boundary, writes John O'Donoghue. It's a frontier that divides two different territories rhythms and atmospheres. In the world of nature, the chrysalis is such a frontier, the space between two territories where neither the caterpillar nor the butterfly has form or shape, liminal. For almost 40 days, we inhabit liminal space. We live a chrysalis life, our days a helpless hanging on. Recovering from radiation therapy proves to be as tricky and unpredictable as recovering from brain surgery. Since both have occurred within six months, it's double jeopardy. It takes years for the brain to recover, I hear the oncologist say. The journey is painfully slow. One step forward, two steps back. Most days, Nate experiences energy surges in the day that last from 30 minutes to an hour, and then he's flat on the couch, struggling to keep his eyelids open. During an energy surge, he and I go for a drive to break up the day. Sometimes he can hold a conversation, other times we drive in silence. I can't help but wonder if he is listless because of the treatment, or if this is the cancer kicking in. Stay in hope, be here, try not to look over the edge of today. I feel like I'm regressing, Nate says, toward the end of January, two weeks out of treatment. Ah, not according to the green sheet, I say. Together we look at the one-page summary from Cancer Care, caring for yourself after radiation treatment. The tiredness and fatigue will continue while your body heals, says the green sheet. Your energy levels will return with time, usually within eight to 12 weeks after your last day of treatment. The green sheet, however, says nothing about the emotional recovery after radiation, how the burns on the skin get branded on the heart, how the wounds in the psyche are as cumulative as the radiation in the brainstem. 
An image comes to Nate in the wee hours of the morning. He is on a deserted dirt road. The trees on either side of the road are barren. Their trunks and twigs are still as lifeless sentinels. The sky overhead is dark and foreboding. He is walking alone. He asks Jesus to walk with him on this stretch, and he hears nothing. God is gone, he says. I'm silent, unsure how to respond. Have I not journeyed to these same places in my own heart, disillusioned, bitterly complaining to God for allowing my son to go through this hell? Have I not cried out in the night? The tumor was supposed to be benign. How long, O oh Lord? How long will he suffer? Have mercy on him, heal him. If he's not healed, don't let him suffer long. I wonder about the dream then, the one he had at Christmas, and about our oncologist's words of hope. Are signs and dreams meant for the day? Are they meant for a season? Will the hope of the dream hold? I don't know. How can I? How can any of us? Is it any less a mercy if it doesn't? I write an email to update the community. We are in the long middle, I say, where loneliness is a constant companion, consolation cannot be found, and faith is brittle. The long middle. This is liminal space. With thanks to both of these writers for being prepared to read publicly in the church on the 29th of November. To all of you for listening, if you're interested in these books, we at St. Benedict's Table have got copies which we are going to make available over the course of December for purchase at the church, or you can simply email us and we'll put you directly in touch with the authors. And I have to say, what a delight it is to be part of a community, even a smallish, COVID-stricken community, that can include this array of people writing this array of materials that we can then share with all of you. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening. Make way, make way, make way.